All right. A thought just occurred to me. Those Christian chicken people don't work on Sundays. Great. It's all for your volunteer team. They know how to do it. So, hey, I've, cars has, has always been something I've been absolutely fascinated with. I mean, as a kid. I remember growing up sitting on the porch with some of my, my friends. We would, uh, we would try to identify every car that drove by the house, and we got really good at it. Now, I know as, as soon as I started telling it, sort of like, how boring does that sound, <laughs> sitting on the porch of our house just watching cars? Uh, trust me, things got a little more exciting after we started driving, and, uh, and some of which I could probably tell you about, some of which I will not tell you about. Uh, but I've always been fascinated with cars. And uh, I, I was reading someplace where... Um, that job is a lot harder today, of course, than it was back when I was counting cars and watching cars. Uh, one author I read said there's 25 million possible combinations of, of models, styles, colors, and uh, just, just of cars. 25 million different scenarios of a, of a possible car. So that's a little bit. Now, I do have a great-grandson, believe it or not, and uh, he also is a great um, a great admirer of cars, and his tastes are, were a lot more expensive than what my tastes were. When, when Teslas were first just a thing, I mean, they were, they were out, but they just wasn't the most popular thing like, like, like electric cars are today. But this kid could spot a Tesla anywhere, and it was like, where, where, where? And there it is. And so for his sixth birthday, I thought, how cool it would be to give him a special gift. So I asked my friend Aaron Masson, who's a Southbroker who drives a Tesla, said, hey, would you meet me in the parking lot and would you give my, my great-grandson Brody a, a special birthday gift? He said, I'd love to. So we met him at the parking lot, didn't tell Brody a thing about it until he got, as soon as he pulls in the parking lot, Tesla, he spotted it, of course, and uh, said, well, that's, that's your birthday present. I get it? No, 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 no. No, it's not your car. You just take a ride in it. So he took a ride in it. This is the picture that shows the two of them together with Aaron and, and Brody. And uh, what's funny is after we left, he said, I know what I want for my next birthday. What's that? I want do you know someone who has a Lamborghini? <laughs> I don't like the direction this thing is going. At some point, it's going to be a Formula One uh, Indy car, I suppose. But so for his next birthday, I went on Amazon, got him a model Lamborghini, and we put it together and assembled it together, and he loved it. So I was able to kind of curb that, that, uh, that desire down. My cars have always been, been super, super special with me. I've loved cars. Uh, my, great, my granddaughter, Reagan, and I, I, I brainwashed her early on because I've always loved Mustangs. So as a child, she was brainwashed into thinking that Mustangs are the best vehicle out there. So we, we developed a game called Stang Bang. It's our game. We made up the rules. She made up most of the rules. <laughs> and so we got certain points for recognizing a Stang Bang first. You got bonus points if it's a Grabber Blue Stang Bang. More bonus points if it's a Grabber Blue Convertible Stang Bang. More points if it's a Sean Mendez Mustang, because she loves Sean Mendez. And also, because the, uh, the antithesis to, to Stang Bangs were the, what we called the C word in, in Chevrolet. Not the Corvette, the other one. <laughs> but we weren't allowed to say the name. In fact, if I'd say it in my message, she would dock me points for saying the name. So I'm not allowed to say the, the, the actual name for the C word. Uh, but that was if we have, end up accidentally calling a C word a stang bang, we lost multiple points to the point that you could probably never win again. So we just had this game, and we loved it. We played it to this day. We'll, we'll call out a stang bang, not quite as aggressively as we used to, but... 
we loved, loved doing those with, with cars. But then some things began to happen. And uh, I, I look back on my life and I think, wow, there's cars represented a lot of things I enjoy, I have a passion about, and there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, we, you know, we love things like the, these cruise-ins. But it also became kind of a symbol of something that began to be getting unhealthy in my life. I'm a, I'm a three on the Enneagram, which is an achiever. And I didn't know this at the time. I've read back and studied a lot about it now, but I began to see some unhealthy threenesses in me that uh, really was affecting uh, a lot about my source of identity. And cars were not the cause of that. Cars just reflected my unhealthiness. And that was that my, my identity was based upon just upon things and upon success and upon being significant. In fact, if you read about a three, you know, the unhealthy three can be very obsessive and uh, very angrodizing. Ang they can also basically are, are so focused upon their value and their success that they can actually make things up in order to be more successful in my own eyes. And the fear of, of a three is that I would be insignificant or would be a failure. Uh, one author says, to cope with this fear, they look for ways to win in life, reassuring themselves that they are valuable. And that was me for a long, long time. My unhealthy three could be seen in, the, in my possessions, like cars and boats and things, and I became very obsessive with those and controlling of those um, in the way I led a church, uh, in my attitude towards just a lot of things in life, uh, athletics. Um, my unhealthy three was kind of revealing itself in so many ways. I had rules for our cars. I mean, very strict rules, clean rules. You don't eat in my car. And again, there's, I, I, I kind of still feel that way today, but I don't obsess over it today. But, but you don't wipe uh, the, the fog off of windows with your hands. You don't write on, on the fog or the steam on your windows. I remember a time when Reagan had a friend with her, and we were driving somewhere, and it was uh, really cold outside. I had the heater going, and so the windows were fogging up there on the back. And her friend started to do something and wipe the fog off the window. And Reagan whispered, don't do that. Don't do that. And there's a part of me that says, yes, I have raised Reagan correctly. But then there's another part of me that felt very ashamed. I'm very sorry that she felt like that was a rule that she had to keep her friend from doing because somehow I would be upset with that. And so those... When, we, when my wife and I got married up in Columbiana, Ohio, I parked my car five miles away in a county fair parking lot that was going on at the time, thousands of cars. The only person who knew about it was my best man, and I would have literally killed him probably if he had shared with anyone because I didn't want people, because I heard they were going to do something to my car right on it, and you know, I don't know if they are going to put stuff around it, but I thought, no, 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 no. So I parked five miles away to protect my car from anyone doing something on it. And so we used my best man's car. I didn't care what they did to his car. And then God began to really do some things with my heart. A couple of significant events in my life. One was a global leadership summit that I attended. And I remember hearing a speaker say that the pace at which I'm doing the work of God is destroying the work of God in me. I thought, that's, that's me. I began to read. One of the books I began reading was a book called Margin by Dr. Richard Swenson. And uh, I began even to teach that because it was so relevant to my life. And 
And the best way to, to really put something into your life is to teach it to others because I, as you do that, you, you begin to kind of continue to develop those habits in yourself. And, and oh, Margin talked about obsessions in life and it talked about how we hold on to things so tightly and we have such a tight grip upon things and they become our masters and they become the ones that lead us. And he talked about idols and altars. And some of you have heard me mention this before and that became so, so very real to me that so many things in life can become an idol or they can become an altar. And I've remembered that ever since. And I knew that some of the things in my life, they're not wrong things. They just had become my idols. And I worshiped them. And they controlled me. They controlled my attitudes. They controlled my obsessions. Because somehow that was going to make me feel valuable or make me feel significant, even though they couldn't do that. This author said that uh, these possessions make great servants, but terrible masters. And that's true. And so God began to doing this work in my life. And I want to ask you, is there something in your life? It may not be cars. Some, to some of you, like this whole idea of cars is like, they're a means of transportation. There are four tires on the ground. And as long as it's reliable and safe, I don't care what it looks like. I don't care how shiny the wheels are. I don't get out and then wipe off the dust off the car. And I take care. I don't care. But to others, even to those of you who say that, there's still something in your life that is maybe controlling you. When we think about self-control problems, it's really when you're doing something that you really want to stop, but you can't. And it could be anything. It doesn't have to be immoral or illegal. It can just be anything that is controlling you as opposed to you controlling it. There's an enormous amount of people. With, we think about the classic addictions of alcohol and drugs and spending and gambling and sexual addictions and overeating and undereating. But don't stop there. There's also so many of the other the socially acceptable addictions that are just as damaging to our, to our identity. They can be anything from, from the way we speak, the way we view our, our physical bodies, the way we, our careers, our, our, our emotions, our anger, and our anxiety. All of us, we may not have the enormous, huge self-control problems, but we all have something in our life that is potentially controlling us. So what's the answer to that? The Apostle Paul gives us a great, great solution to this problem. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 23 through 27. I do all of this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Now, I want you to remember that phrase. I'm not going to have a slide towards the end, but I want you to remember that because we're going to come back to that and you'll see how that all fits in so well with what he's saying. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way so that you get the prize. Everyone who competes, actually the word for wrestling, everyone who wrestles in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself may not, will not be disqualified for the prize. Now, the word self-control really isn't used in this passage in this text, but there, it's implied. In verse 25, when he says it goes into strict training, the word there literally means panta, 
and all things self-rule. An athlete, and that's, he just uses an athlete. You can use any example. You may say, I don't like all these sports illustrations. Well, Paul was just using something that he knew people could relate to. So what, what do you relate to? It may not be athletics, but you relate to something. So something that maybe has a potential of controlling you. He says, I go into strict training so that I would control self-rule in all panta, all things. What does that mean? He talks about runners who run for the prize, wrestlers who compete for the crown or for the wreath, boxers who don't just beat the air, they aim for the chin. <laughs> I boxed one time. That tells you a little bit about how my career in boxing went. One time. And it was, it was one of my matches at, at, at college, and a friend of mine, my, in fact, my roommate, much smaller than I was, had his gloves out, was going, I said, he got an extra pair of gloves, and let's just play around. So we just played around. He caught me one time in the chin, and I saw stars. I said, oh, well, I found out one thing I'm not good at, so I'm not going to there. So, uh, but, so the boxers aim for the chin. He says, I, I beat my body. I, I, it's not talking about self-flagellation. It's not hurting himself. What it means is I wear down resistance in my body. I wear, wear down anything that's resisting me. In Luke 18, Jesus tells a story about a widow who goes before a judge to plead her case. And it says he kept going after her, and he, he kept ignoring her. She kept going after her, kept going after her, kept going after her. She was wearing down his resistance until he finally listened to her plea. If you are a parent of adolescent children... You understand what that means, how a child can wear you down by asking the same question over and over and over and over, buy this, buy this, let me do this, let me do this, until finally he says, okay, okay, whatever, go play in the traffic, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Paul says, I wear down the resistance of anything that's going to hold me back from, from achieving the crown or the price. What is the crown? What's the prize that's so important to Paul? According to American Psychologists Association's annual stress in America survey, which I've never taken and never heard of before, lack of willpower is frequently cited as the people's top reason for not achieving their goals. So what's holding us back? Many people would say, well, you need more willpower. You just need to be stronger, more willpower. You've got cake and ice cream and donuts on one side and you know that you've got a competition of some some sort of athletic or you're just you're just trying to diet and you see all these things on one side how do I say no that when my emotions say I want that so badly whatever it is you say well we just need more willpower in fact the Greek Stoics that's what they taught they said that the secret to self-control was willpower in fact, they believe that willpower was just simply mind over emotion. So because the emotions were part of the body, which they believed was bad, the body was bad, the mind was good, so therefore the mind has to have control over the bad body emotions because that's what they believe. So mind over, and we still do that today, just to say, just don't do it. Just stop. Uh, even, even organized religion, at least what I grew up in, a lot of it was just, here are the rules, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, or stop doing this, stop doing this, stop doing this. And then to add a little caveat on it, you need a little hellfire fear in your life so that don't do this or you're going to go to hell. So that, that's, that creates more, more and more willpower. So is that the answer? Willpower? No, it's not. 
There's a book by the name of Willpower Doesn't Work by Benjamin Hardy. Listen to one of his quotes. Let's be honest. You've tried to improve your life a million times, and a million times you've come back to the drawing board. Frustrated. You've tried willpower to kick a habit but fell back into old patterns. You've tried New Year's resolutions, but by February, everything reverts back to how it was a year before. You set big, life-changing goals, but seem to find yourself far short of them despite hard work. After enough failure, it's easy to conclude that you're the problem. You must not have what it takes, the grit, the inner strength, the willpower. Maybe you should just settle for the life that you have. Just give up. You don't have it. Well, God's Word has a much, much different answer. Much different. Every part of you is made in the image of God. Your mind, your will, your emotions, all in the image of God. And even though the Greeks taught that the emotions were lower because they were part of the body, the body was bad, the spirit was good, so the mind had to have dominated over the body. But the reason you have emotions is because you're made in the image of God, and God has emotions. Now, certainly, we all are tainted by sin, so we have to understand that there's a, there's a, a, a temptation within all of us, even with the way we think or the way that we feel, so we can't totally trust emotions and will. So that's where, that's where this other entity comes in, and that's, what, that's where Paul is speaking. The secret of self-control Look at the athlete again. Do they not want the donuts or the ice cream or the cake? Yes. But they don't do that. Why? Because there's something more important to them. The prize. The prize. Self-control is not a matter of the will. It's a matter of the heart. Setting the heart focused upon those higher things. Dr. Tim Keller, who, by the way, uh, just passed away last week, and I know we've referred to him a lot in, here at Southbrook. He's a tremendous author and speaker and, and uh, teacher. In his book, Making Sense of God, he describes the heart. He says, the great human struggle is not between mind and body, but takes place within the heart. And he calls the heart here the hidden core of self that could respond to or reject the will and love God's love or not. So there's something within each one of us that's the core of our being that has the potential of accepting love or rejecting love, has accepting uh, either the mind and the will or rejecting it. Jesus says this. He says, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. That's where the core of your being is also. Dr. Keller also, uh, I was listening to one of his podcasts. He tells the story about... Uh, Jacob, back in Genesis 29. This is a very complex, long story, but I'm going to really, really summarize this. There's a lot of stuff I'm going to leave out very intentionally, but if you want to read the whole story, go back to Genesis 29 and previous chapters and just read the whole story. It's, it's, it's really amazing. But there's a verse in here that I, I missed for so long, and here's how it applies. So Jacob, is uh, his father tells him, Isaac says, I want you to go over to this other foreign country and look for this guy by the name of Laban, and he has some, some daughters. I want you to marry one of his daughters. Jacob says, okay. So he heads out. He finds Laban. And he, and he sees, he sets his eyes. He sees Rachel. And he is immediately stricken. Rachel is the one. I want to marry Rachel. Well, there's a problem here. 
Laban had an older daughter, Leah. And according to their culture, you couldn't marry your younger daughter until the older daughter was married. And the Bible very carefully describes both Leah and Rachel. And as you read that description, you'll understand why Jacob wasn't interested in Leah. He wanted Rachel. <laughs> and so he said, no, I, 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 I want Rachel. And no, well, Leah's got to go first. Well, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll work for you, for Rachel. And so the Bible tells us that, that Jacob worked for seven years to have Rachel's hand. Now, the story doesn't end there. Unfortunately, Laban kind of pulls a trick on Jacob, but I'm not going to go into that part of the story. But he worked for seven years for Laban, and Laban was referred to as a hard man. So you're working seven, seven, seven years, not days, not weeks, seven years for a hard man for the hand of his daughter Rachel. And you want, maybe you had an interview that said, was that hard? Was that, how difficult was that for you to work for seven years? And here's what Jacob would say. That wasn't hard at all. In fact, in verse 20, so Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. No, it wasn't hard at all. Why, didn't it take a lot of willpower? Jacob, how could you? No, it wasn't willpower at all. It was, Dr. Keller calls it, it was joy power. That's what his heart was focused upon. That's what he was mostly, he was passionate about. He wanted Rachel so badly that seven years of hard work and, and hard labor for a man that, that he didn't really necessarily completely, totally trust or respect, but he was willing to do that. Why? Because his prize, his focus, his, his desire was that Rachel would be his wife. And at uh, seven years, it was like a few days because of his love for her. So if you set your heart on certain things, then that's the secret of self-control. Setting your heart on the one thing that will put into order all the other things. So what is that? What's that look like? Paul tells us. This goes back to our passage earlier. I do all of this. Now stop right there. Paul says, I do all of this. If you read back in the previous verses and chapters, you'll find that Paul went through a lot of hard stuff too in his life. He went through beatings and he went through shipwrecks and he went through you know, all kinds of stuff. But he says, I do all of this for the sake of the gospel. What is that? The gospel is that good news that message into his heart and life that even though you are a, a damaged and fragile and, and imperfect person, that my love for you and my desire for you is so deep that I went to the cross for you and I died for you and my death and my resurrection now gives you a whole new life and now you can live a victorious life. You don't have to fear anything. You can, you can know that those things that have shackled you before like we've been singing about this morning are all broken because of the love of God. That my love for you is so deep, so powerful that, that that's going to be the motivator of your life. So Paul says, that's, that's what I set my heart upon. My identity is based not on what I own, not on the cars that I drive, not on the job that I have, not on the family that I have, not on, not on the looks that I have or have not. My identity is based upon the fact that my God loves me unconditionally. An unhealthy three needed to hear that. So that began a transition in my life. 
Now, the second thing that Paul says, for the sake of the gospel and so that I could share in the blessings of the gospel. What does that mean? Paul was so focused upon the prize. He said, I want to make sure that if you read the end of that passage again, I don't want to be disqualified. Now, what does that mean? It's not that he was going to lose everything that he worked for. He said, I want to make sure that my, the things that come out of my life and my mouth and the actions that I have are congruent or consistent with each other, that I'm not, I'm not violating practicing what I preach. I want to make sure that people around me what they hear from my mouth and the gospel that I share with them and the truths that I share with them, that my life is consistent with that. That's what I want to have. I don't want to, I don't want to miss out on that so that other people are messed up because they have heard me say one thing and see me do something else. Those kind of things are very, very important to me as well. So when Paul, if you look at his life, prior to his acceptance of Christ. He was a Pharisee. He worked very hard at his image. A lot of people think he was a one. I think he might have had at least a three wing because I could really relate with him as well. But he worked very hard at his image and all doing all the right things as a Pharisee. And now look, look at his life now. He, has, he is learning how to self-control because his prize, his focus is upon the gospel and also sharing the gospel, this, this koinonia, this fellowship with others. And that's the beautiful thing about how things can become altars as opposed to idols. So that cars and boats and houses and everything else can also now become used of the Lord. Now, I will tell you this. I am, I'm still the same person I, I've always been. So when I share my truck my boat, they are clean. <laughs> they are detailed. But it's not an obsession. It's not a reflection upon my, my identity. It's because I like clean cars. And I like clean boats. And, I, and so when I serve trip church ministry or, or city lights and we, we haul furniture or do things for other people, you know, you're going to get to ride in a clean truck or a clean car. My, uh, one of my granddaughters, Dakota, she was eight or nine years of age at the time. We'd gone through uh, the Christian chicken place. And we'd gotten a meal there. And I don't know if they still have them or not, but, but they used to have those packets of, of ketchup that you could either tear off the end and, and pour or you can pull up the other end and dip. I don't know if they still have those or not, but she was working on her. She was eating in the car, first of all. And so she's working on her ketchup. And she's, she kind of dealt, I think she maybe tore the end off. She was trying to figure out how to get this other part off. And she's, she squeezed this thing so hard that it was like, an expl like a hand grenade of ketchup. <laughs> and I'm driving, and all of a sudden, I am plastered with ketchup. And the beautiful thing about this was is the look on her face, because she, she thought, I mean, my family had really seen the change in, in the way I viewed things, but I think there's still this wonder, is this really changed for good or not? So she's looking at me like, am I dead? Am I? Am I? I pulled the truck over. We got out some napkins. I said, Dakota, it's okay. It's okay. It'll clean up. And it did. It did. One final story. Look at the life of Jesus. And by the way, the, one of the core value verses that I have adopted that helps me with this idol and altar thing 
is Colossians 3.17. And I want you to see it because I want to share that with you. Because trying to make things idols, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. It wears you down. It's hard. But the joy of allowing things to be altars and to see how God can use them is the blessing of the gospel that Paul talks about. It's enjoyable. It's beautiful. And so this passage became one of my core values. Let every detail in your life, every detail in your life, words, actions, anything, panta, all things, all things, whatever, be done in the name of the Master Jesus, thanking God our Father, and may I add, with joy power, every step of the way. So finally, look, look at the life of Jesus. You ever think about Jesus and self-control? Did he have self-control? Did he learn self-control? He was tempted in all points as we are. How did, how did Jesus di pro provide the discipline of self-control in his own life? Look at Hebrews chapter 12, and I'm just going to read this to you. Listen very carefully. Since we are such, surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every thing that hinders us. Remember that, that idea of, of, of wearing down any resistance? Paul says, or the Hebrew writer says the same thing in Hebrews 12 here. Everything that hinders us that so easily entangles us, and let us run with perseverance, not willpower, but perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So did Jesus practice willpower? No, it was joy power. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What did Jesus not have before the cross that gave him the, the perseverance to endure the cross? What was the joy set before? What was the, what was the Rachel in his eyes that allowed him to endure all that all that hard, hard, hard road of being beaten and persecuted and abandoned and forsaken and then finally physically nailed to a cross. What was the joy set before him? What was the Rachel in his eye? What did he not have then that he has now? He had the Father, I mean, even though there was a time where he was forsaken by the Father, but he had the Father. He had the power over all mankind. He had all authority given to him. You know what he didn't have? Or me. That was the joy. That was his Rachel. You were his Rachel. I was his Rachel. And that becomes the source of our identity. And when we have that identity that I am a beloved son of the most high God with supreme value and worth just as I am today. Or you're a beloved daughter of the most high God with supreme value and worth just as you are today and yet God loves you so much he's not going to allow you to stay the same. He wants you to grow. He wants you to become more like him. But when we have that as our, as our prize, that gospel and sharing the gospel, sharing this life with others, 
That is the secret. That's not willpower. That's joy power. That's joy power. This is a big weekend for a lot of people, for our family, for many of you as well. It's a it's graduation later on this afternoon. Dayton Christian will have their commencement service in here. Our granddaughter will be one of the ones standing on the stage being celebrated. Uh, lots of parties, lots of grad parties going on. Lots of other schools and, and colleges are having their, their commencements and their services all throughout these last week or so and, and days. And just, it's just a big, big, a big weekend. And I, I think even this message of, of where's your identity, where's your source of identity, how can you develop this, this secret of, of, of self-control in your life so it affects Ponta, all things in your life, all things. Maybe this is a good time for us to just share with our graduates. So if you're a graduate, if you're graduating from a high school, college, career center, uh, anything at all that you're graduating from uh, that's, that's academic related or whatever, would you just stand? And, and if you're in a small theater, reverie, again, even at home, I'd love to just to have a final prayer over you and just thank you for everything. This is the early service, so probably most of you are going to be in the 11 o'clock service. <laughs> Do we have any graduates in here? Oh, yes, okay. We do. Remain standing, if you will. I just want to pray, and then we'll be dismissed and have a great day. I'm gonna, I'll see you out in the cruising parking lot. God, thank you so much for these men and women who are, are entering a, a different time, a different chapter of their life. And uh, whether it be high school, college, kindergarten, uh, you know, there's all kinds of things that are, are, are in front of us. There's a there's a curve in the road, and sometimes it's hard to see around that curve. Where, where are you leading? God, I pray your anointing, your blessing upon their lives. May they acknowledge that, Father, that, that you uh, are the most important root of their identity and help them, Father, to, to place that, that focus of, upon you because, Lord, when we put you as the center of our heart and the focus of our heart, then, then we learn how to demonstrate self-control in all areas of our life. So God, may this message be applicable to their lives as well as all of us, and we give you all of this in Jesus' name. And everyone who agreed said, amen. amen. God bless you. Have a great weekend.